It's a peaceful protest. We walking, raising awareness. Some of the injustice that we've been seeing is not okay. And as a young person, you gotta you gotta listen to our perspective. Our voices need to be heard. People are gonna look back. Our kids are gonna look back at this and say, "You were a part of that." I got a grandfather that marched next to Dr. King in the '60s, and he was amazing. He would be proud to see us all here. We gotta keep pushing forward. Sports are like the reward of a functional society. Sirius XM Sports presents Forward Progress, a weekly open conversation on race and sports in America. Here are your hosts, Jason Jackson and Kirk Morrison. Forward Progress, here we are, looking for some. <laughs> we'll get to that in just a moment. Uh, we are going to have a Black History celebration uh, today on the program. Kirk kind enough to share some fantastic interviews from a special he's doing over on NFL. Um, we also will have our Black History moment. Uh, we'll take you back to uh, a wonderful female athlete from the early 1900s that has a first that might rock your spine. But first, uh, we said we were going to follow this Flores story with the National Football League, and it didn't take long for other stories to start to pop up. Uh, this week, all throughout the NFL week, the Super Bowl week, the story will be aligned with everything that's going on. Sure, you want to focus, Kurt, on yeah. the championship uh, possibilities of, of <laughs> the, the Rams and the Bengals, but it's hard to get away from the reality of what it transpired, obviously, with what Coach Flores laid down. And really one of the tributary conversations that came out of it, uh, which was this incentive to fail. Yeah. And it was one of the key tenets for Coach Flores to step out and put everything on the line um, simply because so much had been in the shadows for him and so many other black coaches. And Hugh Jackson came out and co-signed uh, the Browns providing incentives for losing during the 16 and 17 seasons. And, and the reason why this is uh, so impactful, one of the chief tenets of any professional league, not just the National Football League, but one, I mean, things being on the up and up that fans realize what they're seeing right. is the best effort is, I think, imperative league being taken seriously if you have all these back channel conversations that kind of speak to what people believe sometimes uh is is like these back rooms smoky rooms fedoras and cigars and hey this is what we're gonna do right you start making that a reality for your league you turn into a joke and it's this is too serious of a business uh where to begin to start talking about the reality of organizations trying to race to the bottom and believe that the best way to make things work. Like the, the thing that's crazy to me is sabotaging these coaches and, and trying to get them to be involved in it, knowing full well, it's going to crush uh, the perception of their coaching ability. Yeah. Um, but it's another thing to be so <laughs> How many, how many of these, these these draft picks hit, bro? You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's the biggest roll of the dice 
there is. And when you hit, it's awesome. When you don't, boy, you're putting your organization back into the stone edges. And and Coach Jackson mentioned last week um, that there was a four-year plan that incentivized losing during his first two years uh, in Cleveland. And And by the way, as a Browns fan, it worked. I watched all 31 yeah. <laughs> of those losses, one in 31 during uh, the 16-17 season with bonus money available if certain measures were met. Yeah. Yeah, it's it, it was a lot. And, you know, Hugh came out and, and said, look, I wasn't necessarily paid for losing. He did come out and say, I was not paid for losing. Yet, Hugh Jackson still got a contract extension after going, like you mentioned, <laughs> one in 31. So there was some sort of plan in place to your point. Um, I think all of this really comes down to a lot for me, Jax, more and more, is that as we enter the final week of the NFL season and there's just a couple of jobs left. This hiring cycle still has not brought an African-American head coach. There has not been. And that's sort of hard to say that when you have a league that's 70% African-American and you don't have but one head coach still in Mike Tomlin, there are still a lot of good candidates, guys who um, have the ability but you can honestly see that the league is it's still it still has some work to do. And I think that's what this this entire Super Bowl week is really about is how does the NFL change what's going on? How do they handle this? There is a Rooney rule in place, but is the Rooney Rooney rule working? How do we fix that? How do we get more minorities into positions of not only power, but positions to lead men more, not just Mike Tomlin? Now, look, there was a, you know, a new um, Quezzi Adolfo Mensa. So he is the new um, Minnesota Vikings general manager. And so, yes, it is a minority hire. So there are hires there. But we sometimes know more of the head coach than we do the general manager. And so that's the hard part, I think, for a lot of people is that you we're still waiting for the coaches like Eric Bieniemy, right, to get that opportunity. Byron Leftwich, we thought was going to Jacksonville, then he pulls out. And so you also have to look at it a different way, too, in that are some jobs good for me or my career or would it push me further down the line? Well, I think in Hugh Jackson's case, he went to Cleveland. And he endured that losing. I don't think that that works for him going forward. He won't get a head coaching job, I think, again, because of what's on his resume, that that mark. And so I think coaches are looking at these jobs and saying, is this really good for me? Or will I get blackballed? And, and, and I won't say blackballed, but will they use that against me later? We all want a head coaching job. You say, yeah, I'll take that job for sure. And then all of a sudden on, on your record is, well, he went three and 14 now, you know, with the 17 game season and, and, and you get fired. We've seen it happen to Steve Wilkes in his first year. Right. You know, we've seen some coaches who it just wasn't a right fit. Come on, man. Brian Flores was a, is a winner. He was a winner. And to see him be fired, obviously it's, it comes from upstairs and not from him. It's not from his uh, lack of production. So as this hiring cycle comes to a close, Jax, in the coming weeks, we have to ask the NFL, how do they fix this problem that 
Brian Flores has went out and said, you know what? I can care less about my football coaching career right now. If I don't stand up, this will continue to keep going on and on and over and over. And so you applaud him. And now I think it's up to the NFL to see how they fix this problem. Browns called the charge from Jackson uh, completely fabricated. You know, the Dolphins and Giants and Broncos and the league overall <laughs> will uh, put up their defenses. It's going to be interesting um, to hear uh, how this progresses internally. But I want to get to the point that you were making about job choosing. Yeah. And it's just impossible not to take an opportunity when presented. Yes. As a black head coach candidate. We're going through this cycle again, and it 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 clearly looks like every single position is going to be filled with a white coach. And it's the predominant space, right? In the sense of candidates that are available. But this league puts itself in position to try to be diverse and inclusive. Right. But but we've heard over and over again that the Rooney rule can just be a box that's checked. And how do you balance yourself as a candidate when you know full well odds are, right, you're just being interviewed so that a requirement is met, not because you're truly coveted by that particular team. Yeah, you just you know that they're just checking a box. And I think that's the difficult part. How do you know the uh, difference? Right. I mean, like that's that's the premise. Yeah. You know, I, I think some know. Um, it's always good to put that on your resume. I, I've known some coaches that have uh, that have interviewed for, you know, head coaching jobs. And, you know, it's good to have that on the resume. Hey, I've interviewed for head coaching jobs. I've been a head coaching candidate. So it's not. Uh, a bad or rotation thing. or two, though, Kirk. Right? I mean, right. you start coming around as many times as enemy has. It's starting to pile That's up for left coach. Like it's just like, come on now. That the, the, now those are a little bit different. And you know, talking someone to somebody close to the enemy camp, um, he's turned some jobs down because he just knows, like, this ain't for me. You know, so, you know, the layer of it that I'm alluding to. Correct. That's got to be a challenge because here's the other thing. Mm -hmm. It starts getting around that you're picking and choosing too. Yeah. I don't know if that even, as much as I know the cross section of race and some decision-making is obvious. We're not going to be naive. Right. Anybody turns down too many gigs and that becomes becomes (laughs) the the stamp on your forehead as you walk in, right? (laughs) Yeah, I think sometimes, um, and I look at it in college football too, there's these long-time defensive coordinators or offensive coordinators, and you say, man, when are they going to get a head job? And some of them say, you know, I'm completely fine with what I'm doing too. I do want to run my own show, but I kind of like what I'm doing now. And having my own space and doing so, and knowing that if I do go out, I have to take away who I am at times and jump out on the list. Some, some people aren't ready to, I know Eric, the enemy is I've, I've known EB for a long time, but I do know some coaches don't want to take on a ship that's already taken on water. And now you're just trying to get the water off the boat instead of just keeping the boat float. You know what I mean? You got a lot going on. 
And so I think sometimes there are some good jobs that are allow you for that. And hopefully Eric can get that opportunity. But if not, it, it he will at some point. And we see like I feel like we say this every single year when it comes to the enemy and some of these coaches, but I just feel like more chances need to be taken in the NFL and more opportunities in terms of these interviews have to be very much more thorough instead of just checking the box, right? I hear these names and, oh, it was great he interviewed, but did he really have a chance to get the job or was it something that you just had to do to say, hey, oh, I did it. I checked off the box of the minority candidate. And I salute the Roonies again, 15, was it almost 15 years ago? They, uh, they got Mike Tomlin. He blew him away. And he's still doing it now at the highest level. And I would hope other franchises see the way that he's been doing and have the, the backing of his organization. That's why this team has always been in the playoffs or a winning record under Mike Tomlin in his time since he's been in Pittsburgh. We should remember this Flores case is a class action suit. So there can be uh, more than just him uh, yeah. as the plaintiff, Coach Jackson. Uh, now let's remember, by the way, the head football coach at Grambling. Um, said that uh, he joined that class action if that's what's needed to be, that he's not afraid to stand behind Brian when it comes to anything because he knows what black men go through mm-hmm. and that he doesn't want this for uh, the, the brothers that are coming coming behind. Um, it, it's it's going to be interesting to see if others open up and share their experience. This, this is not uh, a solid ground. Right. This okay. is a thin branch and it's going to take some courage. What's your anticipation? You know, I think some guys aren't willing to go out on a limb. Um, I, I have friends who are on that staff and, you know, a lot of them are, are, were, were blindsided that Flores was fired, too. You know, and so now they have to go and find other jobs. And now you hope that, hey, you're what's going on with Flores doesn't kind of fall on you because you were part of that staff. And so I think going forward, guys, kind of, you know, you want to shy away. There are a lot of young coaches in this league, too, black coaches, who are still trying to find their way and their path. And I think that's the hard part, too, is a lot of guys know that joining something like this, um, you're also playing career suicide, too, because people may want to stay away from you. So I think we won't see as many, but there may be a couple, you know, like a Jim Caldwell um, as a guy who former Detroit Lions head coach had back-to-back nine and seven seasons, had that Detroit Lions team going in the right direction. And they said, oh, it's not good enough. They fired him and they've been in mediocrity ever. Well, they were already in mediocrity before him. He changed the narrative, but they said, yeah, just having a winning season is not good enough and going to the playoffs. We want more. And so obviously like they're right back into being mediocre and now they have the, uh, I believe, number two pick in this year's NFL draft. <laughs> mm. Rinse and repeat. Yep, that's it. Let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, people, Kirk's been busy. All right. He's been working <laughs> on a wonderful special entitled Trailblazers, a celebration of Black history in the National Football League. Uh, get ready for some awesome conversations with Franco Harris, with Marlon Briscoe. With Warren Moon, my man came in here with a (laughs) package load of history to discuss as we continue here on Forward Progress. 
You're listening to Forward Progress on Sirius XM Radio. As promised, our celebration of Black History Month uh, has a pigskin lean, uh, thanks to the associations of uh, our man who's in, enjoying uh, the culmination to the championship this week in his backyard, which has got to be lovely. Uh, but, but Kirk, these conversations that you had with Franco Harris, with Marlon Briscoe, with Warren Moon, before we get into them, what was the overall experience? What did you derive from these conversations? You know, Jax, uh, I'm, I'm so glad that uh, I had opportunity to do these. Um, you know, I, I was approached with, you know, what did you want to do for, you know, Black History Month? And and I think sometimes we we focus on some of the guys who have been uh, groundbreaking, uh, color barriers and things like that. And But I said, well, there's a lot of firsts that we sometimes don't talk about. And so this has really been about some of the firsts. And in doing the research, you mentioned Marlon, Marlon Briscoe and, um, you know, Frank O'Hare, just guys who you kind of forget that, oh, this was the first this, this was the first that. I mean, it's going to be from coaches to players, officials. Um, you know, I really dug a little deep into this, Jackson. I was really surprised because, you know, th- this isn't going to be in your history book at school. <laughs> you know, yeah. th- this is something that you have to kind of do on your own. There's books that are now being published. But to find this research and just feel just more and more to me, just inspired by what many had to go through to get to this point. Um, this was uh, definitely, like I said, inspiring for me. Trailblazers, a celebration of black history in the National Football League available right now on the SXM app. I'm glad that we're going to share uh, some of your conversations right here on Forward Progress. And let's start off. Listen, I'm, I'm putting down my allegiance. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm putting down my rivalry. Um, the early part of my childhood <laughs> haunted Right. By the still curtain. Uh, your first conversation. Oh, get us to Franco Harris. Yeah, you know, I had a chance to talk to the legendary running back of the Pittsburgh Steelers. And look, it still hurts my heart too, Jack. Say hey, I was a I'm a grew I grew up a Raider fan, right? <laughs> yeah, and so yeah. yeah, we know one of the greatest catches he ever had was uh the immaculate reception against my then Raiders. But uh the four-time Super Bowl champ, uh the nine-time Pro Bowler. You know, I wanted to ask him, and this is where I got into it. I want to know his thoughts on being the first African-American and Italian MVP in the NFL and kind of what was his love for Steeler Nation? When celebrating Black History Month, I think about a lot of the firsts in the NFL in terms of uh, whether it's the first black quarterback, the, the first um, you know black player inducted into the Hall of Fame. Then there's also the first black player to be named Super Bowl MVP, one of the most prestigious honors in the NFL. Like this is Super Bowl 56 right now, and there's only been 56 MVPs. You are the first black MVP. What sticks out to you, first of all, about that game? And number one, when you hoist the, the, the MVP trophy and get that honor, just what that do, what did that do for you in terms of not only your life on the field, but off the field? Well, I have to admit that back then it didn't even cross my mind about being the you know first African American to receive the MVP of the Super Bowl. 
right? Yeah. And and I looked into it, you know, years later after I retired, uh, and and like it just struck me quite odd, that, you know, of uh, having having that particular distinction, right? And because uh, it's something that never occurred to me before. Now I have to admit, Kirk, like I. This is what I tell people about that, that that I'm the first African-American to be an MVP and the first Italian mm-hmm. heritage to be MVP. So that is, you know, quite a position. You know, you grew up in Jersey, played high school football in New Jersey, and yet you go to Penn State. You have this great career at Penn State University. And then you mentioned playing for the Steelers for as long as you did, and, and it feels like you're a native Pennsylvanian. <laughs> For you, just explain how the fan base in Steeler Nation embraced you, the state of Pennsylvania, how it embraced you, the city of Pittsburgh, how it embraced you. I've been around you at Super Bowl events and parties, and I swear to you, you, you walk around and people from Pittsburgh and Pennsylvania absolutely adore Franco Harris. They give you hugs and smiles. For you, and growing up in the, I mean, coming into the National Football League, and we're talking about the honor of being the first black player named as a Super Bowl MVP, but the way that the fans embraced you, how great was that? You know what? It has been incredible. And just as you mentioned, now people probably don't know this. From 1933 to 1971, the Steelers were the worst team in NFL history. <laughs> they had more losses than any team, fewest wins, fewest points ever scored in history, most points scored against. They were the bottom of the barrel. And... Then my rookie year in 1972, I mean, my year itself personally was incredible. Way beyond anything I could ever imagine. And got rookie of the year. And then, as you know, went into the second playoff game ever for the Pittsburgh Steelers in 1972 against the Oakland can I say Oakland Raiders to you? Yeah, you can say it. You can still say it, man. I didn't want to bring up because you're bringing up some old wounds right now with the immaculate reception, Franco. I didn't want you to bring it up, but you brought it up anyway, man. But go ahead. No, it's oh, okay. My. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> and of all the teams, right? Right, you know, exactly. Uh, but but when you think about it, you know, that rookie year and, and then the immaculate reception, which was the – First playoff game the Steelers ever won. You know, I tell people first touchdown, first touchdown Bradshaw ever threw for playoffs. You know, my first touchdown ever in playoffs. Uh, first win for the Pittsburgh Steelers in in the in, in in the playoffs. And you know, it was just incredible and. And also, I want to say, which was quite unusual, if you could believe this, do you know that game was not sold out? Wow. <laughs> I mean, the game was not sold out. Wow. And, uh, but every game since then has been sold out. And the Steelers Nation has been incredible. As you said, our fan base was just, you know, just stretches far and wide and um and they are just some of the best fans and and it made it a whole lot of fun when you go to away stadiums now 
if you're playing a Pittsburgh Steelers, sometimes it feels like a Pittsburgh Steelers home game. Man, what a great interview with with, uh, with Franco. And one of the things, too, is that I get a chance to see Franco every year at Super Bowl, Jack. So it, it's one thing to talk and hear these stories. And I never really get a chance to get that in depth. But I do now have a greater appreciation for, you know, watching him and, and how you know a kid from Jersey now becomes a uh, – uh, a Pittsburgh, was it a Pennsylvanian, so to speak? Yeah, but, yeah. Um, yeah. He he has a great event every year at Super Bowl, and, and I see him. And you know, it's one of the things that you know for me. I'm at that age now, Jax, where you see the younger players, the players you played with, and you see the guys who I'm still in awe of. And uh, Franco's still one of those guys, man, because he's you know for me growing up, I I just saw his saw his videos, saw his highlights, and it was definitely great to catch up with him. From uh, one first to another, right? Uh, yeah. it, we, we turn our attention to the first black quarterback in the modern uh, NFL. It's amazing how th- these histories started one way, right, in the 20s right. and then made their way uh, in, in to a new and different space uh, due to heightened uh, segregation and bigotry. Uh, but the story of Marlon Briscoe is not one that probably jumps to the forefront of, of, of young even the young folks that uh, <laughs> think they have it all figured out from a historical standpoint. No, not at all. I think Marlon Briscoe is a story that you need to uh, sit down and, and not only read it and listen to. And I had the honor and the privilege of talking to Marlon Briscoe and to think he was the first starting black quarterback in the NFL. And you just knew, Jax. It wasn't because someone handed him the job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he got the job by, trust me, a, a lot of defaults along the way. But here's Marlon and how he got the opportunity to play quarterback for the Denver Broncos back in 1968. You got drafted back in 1968, round 14, pick 357 with the Denver Broncos. And you had that opportunity to go out there and try out at the quarterback position, but they wanted you to play cornerback. Did you sway away from that and say, you know what, I'm going to keep trying. I'm going to keep trying till I get that opportunity to play quarterback. How did it all kind of play out for you? Well, what happens, I, I uh, negotiated my own contract. And I had found out that Denver was one of the only teams in the, in the league that, that uh, had their uh, practices in front of the public and, and the media. So I told the representative from Denver, I said, well, I'll play corner, but you have to give me a three-day trial of quarterback. They thought I was crazy. So how are you a 14-round draft choice going to dictate how we place you out on the field? I said, well, you know, that's all I want to do is play quarterback. But I'll take the trial at corner, but it has to have that three-day. All I wanted was to showcase my skills, uh, and I was very confident and what I did, but uh, I couldn't get uh, couldn't get them to listen to me at first. <laughs> so, but finally they acquiesced to my uh, demands, so to speak, and gave me uh, that three day trial. And I had a good camp for three days. But I worked hard back home in making sure that I had a, a good showing. That's how it started originally. And then they had uh, some of the reporters that were there, and they said, well, who's the cool kid from Nebraska? And, they, you know, they told them who I was and what I had accomplished in college and all the way up the trail from Pop Warner to college. And uh, after the third day, they, uh, you know, they put me at corner. And I was actually starting corner back for Denver. And then I got hurt. And 
then the the, uh, the quarterback for Denver, Steve Tenzi, he got hurt, and and there were like six guys in that trial that three during that three day trial that was there with me, and they got the opportunity to replace Steve. Well, it didn't go well. <laughs> right. <laughs> for, uh, it didn't go well, and, and I was kind of like on the men, and Denver was we were having so much problems winning games, even scoring. Right. So when I finally my hamstring, I had a hamstring pull, and when it finally healed, I was coming out on the on the field, and Coach Saban called me into his office. So I figured I was going to get cut. Because they needed a quarterback. We hadn't scored at any point. And, uh, you know, I hadn't really played quarterback other than the three-day trial. And when I went to my locker to clean out my locker. And I looked in my locker, and it was number 15 in the locker. And I turned around, and there was Blue Saban. And he said, my friend, that's how he addressed everybody, my friend. Uh, he said, you see that number 15 in your locker? I said, yes, sir. He said, that's yours. You're not a quarterback. Wow. And my, my leg healed up significantly. <laughs> wow. And uh, but that, that's how, you know, that's how it happened. If I had not have negotiated that three-day trial, it would have never happened for me or history, I guess. Yeah, you mentioned it in history indeed as you became the first black quarterback in the AFL and then the AFL merged with the NFL and now you're the first starting quarterback in the NFL, Marlon Briscoe. When you hear that term, what 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 comes to mind as being sort of the trailblazer for that position for African Americans in the National Football League? Well, it, it went beyond just football, right? You know, it, it was a it was a happening and an opportunity for blacks all the realms of the world. You know, 1968 was a very volatile year in the history of this world, not only just the country but the world and the Black quarterback position was something that was like being the president of the United States and, uh, or president of a uh, CEO and CEO of a major corporation. It's very rare. And so to be able to, you know, establish, to be able to, you know, establish a fact that a black man could think, throw, and lead you know, on that level. And it was, I was just glad I was ordained, so to speak, (laughs) to to be the one that that broke that barrier. But I knew Mm -hmm. I could do it, given a chance. Man, wow, such a, a story of perseverance, too. And for a lot of people who now know that Marlon Briscoe was the first black starting quarterback. He's still, um, you know, part of the 72 Dolphins. So, you know, but he was a then wide receiver. But it, it's fun to hear the stories of talking to him about the 72 Dolphins as well, uh, being part of a team that will live on in history, the only undefeated team in NFL history. He was a part of that, but he should be more most known for being the first starting black quarterback in the NFL. It was great to catch up with Marlon. Paving the way for the likes of Warren Moon and so many others, Warren uh, absolutely dominated the Canadian Football League before making it uh, to the National Football League. Just being steadfast about being a starting quarterback, a resume the cult for. Yeah, you mentioned earlier, I'm in Los Angeles, and here's a kid from Los Angeles, goes to the University of Washington, 
breaks all of these records and yet wasn't told wasn't good enough to play in the NFL. And so I got a chance to catch up with Warren just on 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 how and how do you keep your your the hope, the dream up and playing in the NFL when you have to go a different route. Here's a little Warren Moon. Warren, coming out of college, what was the sort of the stereotype about black quarterbacks with the success that you had at Washington? I knew you could play in the NFL, but how was it trying to beat the stereotype of having a black quarterback in the NFL? You know, Kurt, I knew when I first started playing the position as a young kid that it was going to be tough for me to to, to make it as a quarterback in the NFL because there just wasn't a lot of guys for me to look at. Uh, I know that Willie Thrower had had been the first to do it back in like 1952, and then Marlon Briscoe comes along and becomes the first starter in 1968. But other than that, and, and James Harris, who um, later came after that to the Rams, there wasn't a whole lot of guys that I could look at. Joe Gilliam was another one. So I knew it was going to be a difficult road. But, and and uh, every every uh, level that I came up through, whether it was high school, junior college, or major college, you know, everybody wanted to change my position. They wanted to put me somewhere different. You were always um, penalized for your athleticism when you were African-American because they wanted to put you in a position like defensive back or wide receiver somewhere where they could take advantage of your, of your uh, athletic skills because they didn't think you had the mind. You know, they didn't think you could think. They didn't think you could be a leader. They didn't think... Uh, you know, you had the size. They didn't think you had a good enough arm. All these different things that they would tell you, or or at least uh, you know, make you feel that way, and and that's the reason why you weren't uh, being looked at as a quarterback. So I had to you know fight through all those those prejudices as I came up, uh, but I understood that that I was going to have to do that, and and that's what what kind of kept me going. That I was just gonna I was just gonna keep doing what I knew I could do even though I knew there were people that didn't believe in me or believe in other African-American quarterbacks that we could do the job at that position. So all you could really do is just wait for the right opportunity, and then when you got the opportunity, prove it. People now look up to you, and you look at this younger generation of quarterbacks that are now coming into the National Football League that are even established in the National Football League. When they come to you and they seek advice and they – Talk about playing the position as a black man in the NFL. What, what's the advice that you give the likes of Russell Wilson and Lamar Jackson, Patrick Mahomes, um, and, and these other young quarterbacks coming in? You know, the first thing I try and tell them is you just got to continue to be yourself. Don't try and be, you know, something that you're not. Uh, be the hardest worker on your football team because you're going to be looked at even even harder as a as an African American quarterback as opposed to you know maybe another color guy. And they're going to be looking for weaknesses. They're going to be looking for any type of excuse they can give that, that says you're not going to be the, the leader that they think you can be. So be the hardest worker on your football team. Try to be the first one in there, the last one out. And, and just set great examples for your teammates and, and be, a, be a motivator for your teammates. And more importantly than, than all of it, try and give a little bit of peace of yourself to each position group on your football team to let those guys know that you are part of them. And I think if you can do that, and then once you go out on the field and show what you can do with your performance, I think you'll gain that respect that you want to gain from your football team, and uh, they'll want to play for you. So those are some of the things I try and tell all young quarterbacks. It started for you back in 1978, but you got to the NFL in 84. You played quarterback at the highest level for a long time, all the awards, all pros, Pro Bowls, things like that. You make it to the Hall of Fame. And now when you sit back and you think about your career and what you had to endure, what's been the biggest 
biggest takeaway? What, what's the one thing that sort of stands out in your career that you said, wow, you know what, uh, this was actually a, a nice little ride in the NFL? Well, one of the big things is I was glad I wasn't, I didn't give in to the noise. I didn't give in to the to the doubters or, or to people that told me that I couldn't. I continued to keep pursuing uh, my dreams and my goals. And like I said earlier in this interview, as long as I was given an opportunity to play quarterback, I was going to show what I could do. And, and everywhere that I went throughout my career, I was very productive and, and I was a winner as a quarterback. So that part of it, I'm very, very proud of. Um, and I think the, the part that I played, you know, myself, Randall Cunningham, Doug Williams, and then guys before us like James Harris and, and uh, Marlon Briscoe, the part that we played in trailblazing the way for these young guys who you see today that are very, very good young African-American quarterbacks getting a chance to play the position. They're some of the highest paid players in the league. They're some of the highly endorsed players in the league. And I think a lot of that opportunity came because of what we were able to do through our years. It, it really opened the eyes and the minds of ownership of of general managers and of coaches that African-Americans can play this position at a very high level just given the opportunity. And, and now we're, there are so many more opportunities being given, and these guys are showing what they can do. And, and a little bit of that has to do with the way we played. You know, one of those stories for me is it's, it's still always close. Uh, Warren was actually one of the advisors for me, Jax, when I came out in the NFL back in 2005. Mm-hmm. And I remember every day just sitting in that office, uh, just talking to Warren. Because yeah, I think he was still one of the coolest guys, still had that spiral tight. You know, he was one of those, <laughs> one of, he's one of my OGs that still kept the, you know, still dresses fly, had the haircut. And, um, you know, again, back in 2006, I played in the Hall of Fame game. And Warren Moon was inducted into the Hall of Fame in that 2006 game. So one of my memories of uh, of Warren always is me on the field as the Hall of Famers come through and and slap hands with the guys and uh warm moon his gold jacket i was uh playing in that game so always fun memory for me but again uh, a, a show of perseverance and to think we lost so many good years because he played in the cfl but i think he wouldn't have it any other way the way that he came through and became the first black quarterback to be inducted into the pro football hall of fame pretty uh pretty unique story and a friend of the program, one of the early guests, yeah, we, uh, started rolling out our uh, guy progress for everything. Mm-hmm. Here, these interviews in their entirety, and so much more. Uh, all you got to do is check out Trailblazers, a celebration of Black history in the National Football League, on the SXM app. I'm going to take a quick break. Our own forward progress celebration of Black history continues. Uh, we're going to take you back to the early 1900s for a first on the women's side. Chew on that, and we'll be back here on Forward Progress. You're listening to Sirius XM Radio. We now return to Forward Progress. Here's Jason Jackson and Kirk Morrison. Our celebration here of uh, Black History Month uh, turns our attention to the first black woman uh, to win a national title in any major sport. Lucy Diggs Slow, not a name, Kirk, that mm-hmm. just rushes to the forefront uh, when we think about stars of uh, the, the, first of all, she was the first uh, woman uh, to win, won the first women's national singles championship, I should say, of the American Tennis Association. My man, that was in 1917. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> 
with that, her legacy just becomes uh, immense, right? Um, she was more than just a tennis player, right? She's a person who was able to establish educational philosophies that allowed women not just to succeed in the classroom, but also to develop self-determination, respect, and the confidence to succeed in a society that we don't have to sit here and mince uh, right. just beyond turn of the century um, dynamics that, that white men um, were at the forefront of um, society as it pertains to power, structure, and control. Uh, but when you think about somebody that was born in 1885, well, <laughs> Berryville, Virginia, to think that, you know, even the idea of competing in, in the tennis world was not at the forefront, clearly, of that family's uh, mind and establishment. No, not at all. I mean, you talk about 1885, we're going now, we're going before the 1900s. Um, and we're talking about just where our country was at then and how being uh, a person of color, you were obviously weren't treated like others, but you had to do a lot of things in your own group. One of the things that in, in reading up on, on Lucy was that she was part of the divine nine. And you know me, I'm a proud member of uh, Kappa Alpha Psi Fraternity Incorporated. And she was one of the founding members of the sorority um, of Alpha Kappa Alpha, which was started back in 1908 at Howard University. So to your point, Jax, not only was you talk about her family dynamic and you talk about her um, her schooling and you know the, the, the sorority, it was really about having the people come together to understand that we have to have structure in what we do. Like, that's the part that I look at is that because some people will say, well, how come we haven't heard of her or why haven't we found out about her more? Well, it's always been there, but it's us to do it's, it's up to us to do our research and understand that these people out there do exist and we have to figure out where we once came from. And reading up on this story was great because I had no idea. I really didn't. A valedictorian <laughs> at Howard in yes. 1908. Uh, and, and listen, you, you got you to gotta have <laughs> your education focus at the highest of level, oh, yeah. levels at that point, right? Mm -hmm. um, went on to a teaching position in Baltimore, uh, made her way to New York, attended the graduate school at Columbia, Right. Come on now. Come on now. Yep. There uh, it is. Getting an MBA in 1915. Uh, but listen, still staying on top of her tennis game at a high level. Um, yeah. it, it's amazing when you think about what she was able to do. Uh, and, and this tennis event, by the way, was in Baltimore uh, that she wow. ended up winning. So that had to be cool. But uh, it, it's amazing when, when you think about an era that not only pressed down African-Americans, but really ostracized women in such a massive way uh, that she would not take no for an answer, right? Yeah. That's the, the common thing that we continue to have in these pioneering spaces is that you're stepping out on faith and saying to yourself, I'm going to push through, I'm going to go get uh, my education. I'm going to take it further and get a master's degree. I am going to continue to train and stay on top of my game in such a way that I can be one of the best in the nation. Um, and, and it didn't stop there for her, 
right? So she has this amazing height of excellence in her sport. Ended up finding her way a few years later, 1922, became the first dean of women at her alma mater, going back to, to Howard. So the excellence just continued to to, to roll out in, in front of Miss Slow. Yeah, inspiring as well. Um, leading from the front, not the back. And I can only imagine for her at the time um, how so many people looked up to her with what she was doing uh, and maybe didn't have that understanding or um, that shield up. Because obviously, you know, she probably had to, she was, you know, people were saying what she couldn't do, um, what she wasn't supposed to be doing. I mean, this is a woman too, right? Who's doing all of this. This is a woman who was in this space of, of building, of, of bringing women together. Uh, you mentioned the, the, the dean of women and continuing her excellence on the sports field, on the court, but then also doing it in the classroom and also trying to continue to keep better in herself where I would say back in that time, from what I gathered and from what I saw, that many women didn't have that same passion. So to see her passions and, and push through and to bring women along uh, is definitely something, like I said, is very inspiring. In, in the early 1930s, uh, she had produced so much work over a decade, specifically focused on uh, women uh, and elevating Black women. But it was so respected at the time that she was invited to address uh, the National Association of Women Deans in 1931, an organization that was all white mm. and was the first African-American to do so. But uh, she continued on through the 30s, uh, spearheading progress for African-Americans on college campuses, lobbying for changes in academic standards for students, bettering health conditions uh, on campuses, as well as an improved workplace atmosphere uh, for female administrators. And you can only imagine in the 30s, what that must have seemed like and how that how that all came about. So um, while standing on top of the world in uh. 1917, uh, <laughs> as it pertains to tennis, particularly in the American tennis community, um, her work just continued to flourish in places that uh, that really made an impact across the country. Yeah, not only country, um, black women, black men. Um, it's a story that continues to, that, that still needs to be taught, that still needs to be heard. So I'm glad that we got a chance for something, uh, for people out there listening, that we got something new, something that you, uh, if you didn't know, now you know. Yeah, I didn't, and now I do. <laughs> yeah, and I do. I love about our Black History Month spotlight here on Forward Progress. Uh, again, partner, I got to thank you. I mean, you, you, you did such a wonderful job. Appreciate uh, those man. interviews. I hope folks uh, hop over to the SXM app. Uh, search Trailblazers. Uh, it's a fantastic program. Trailblazers, a celebration of Black history in the NFL. Here are your conversations with uh, uh, just the great Franco Harris, Marlon Briscoe, Warren Moon, and and so many others. Yeah, man, it was fun. It was fun doing it, and hope to uh, hope to do more of it though. Not just this month, but to continue uh, of the forward progress that we've created. Enjoy Super Bowl week, my man. I am. I'm. I have no rooting interest. I just <laughs> I, halftime is my focus. Ah, there we go. Come on, man. Let him put on his show. That's going to do it for us, for my partner, Kirk Morrison, and our producer, Pernell Brown. I'm Jason Jackson. We'll talk to you next time on Forward Progress.